You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Sam, today we're going to talk about um, something that is both tragic and uh, hopeful at the same time. Uh, that is the the tragic part being the passing of uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, as well as uh, her potential replacement in Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, first, if we can, before we talk about her potential replacement, um, let's spend a couple of moments talking about uh, Justice Ginsburg herself, uh, sort of her legacy, because I've noticed online, at least among my social group, and we've got plenty of overlap there, uh, a sort of mixed reaction uh, to her legacy, a sort of mixed reaction uh, to you know what she left behind. Um, some admiring her uh, her progressive uh, opinions and her uh, uh, her her being a champion for women's rights in a lot of different ways, and some of which focusing on uh, one aspect of those, quote, women's rights as far as uh, her attitude toward abortion in particular. And so, um, Sam, I'm just going to ask you point blank, uh, what are you going to remember about Justice Ginsburg? Uh, what, you know, down the road when we sort of get away from the politicization of uh, of her death and, of course, the her, her replacement. Um, what what are you going to remember, and, and how are you going to remember her? A few things come to mind, some more controversial than others. Sure. Uh, the first being that I think it was a, shall we say, a grave miscalculation on her part not to step down under Obama. And that comes up a lot. They're going to some people who want to kind of take a final passing shot as her as she uh, crosses, uh, uh, shall we say, crosses the River Styx. I know that's uh, not really the analogy to use because, well, that's more Greek than Christian. But you get my point. As, like, mm-hmm. as she passed from this life, there were people who said, you know, if that she were concerned about her legacy, she would have stepped down while Obama was still firmly president so that he could pick her replacement. And... and whether that's true or not, whether she was more concerned about her image or not, is ultimately immaterial to me because she didn't need to help anyone to build the cult around her. And I don't use the word cult loosely or lightly there. There was a cult around Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But um, so there's that. I do think that she, at the very least, had a lapse in judgment in choosing not to step down when a Democrat was firmly in office. Uh, Secondly, um, there is a lot to respect about her. Uh, She broke many, uh, quote-unquote, glass ceilings. There's, of course, a great deal of accomplishments uh, that she uh, lays claim to that are certainly worthy of respect and admiration. And uh, she was a very hard worker and kept going until she just physically wasn't able to. And while one can question the wisdom of that, she certainly wasn't lazy, I'll put it that way. But then thirdly, while we don't want to needlessly rejoice in the death of the wicked, there is a time to rejoice in the fact that wicked judgments have been somewhat curtailed, and that a wicked judge can be curtailed in that. And 
Of course, people will slam her on abortion. She was not on the court during the two most significant uh, abortion rulings, that being Roe v. Wade, of course, and I believe it is Anthony versus Planned Parenthood. Uh, she actually was put on the court, if my memory serves, in 93. So she wasn't involved in those, but she has, or she did, as a jurist, follow a very much a, shall we say, a looser interpretive method than either of us would probably lean towards. Uh, she very much followed a philosophy that said that the law should be written as we think, the law should be interpreted as we think it ought to have been written. And so that led to charges of judicial activism, some of which I think there are some legitimacy to. Uh, whereas we would probably prefer an originalist uh, reading or a textualist reading of interpreting law and saying, what does the law say? And what does what did these words that are used to convey this law, what did they mean to the original authors? Of course, Chris, you and I are both trained in biblical exegesis. And we were both trained in what could broadly be called an originalist model of interpretation, of going back and understanding not only what the words are, but what they meant to the original author and audience. So there's all of that. But um, like most people of import, her legacy is a mixed one. But I do look forward to her no longer being able to have such interpretive oversight. As much as I mourn her passing and hope that she found God to be merciful and kind to her in her passing. Yeah, I, and I would tend to agree. It is a mixed legacy. Um, you know, she, like you said, she was a hard worker. Um, she, I, one thing that people have made a little bit of that I wish people would have made more of uh, before they both passed on. Uh, was her relationship with Justice Scalia that they were, uh, it seems, pretty close to best friends uh, when they weren't on the court, if you will, uh, when they were, you know, just just on their own time, um, you know, that they uh, that they made a point of having that friendship in spite of some pretty significant differences. There some pretty significant fundamental differences. Um, you you'd be hard pressed to find two justices uh, who were more unlike one another in their views. And yet they had a uh, great communication and a great friendship. And uh, that's something that, you know, frankly, our country could desperately use as a model right now, but probably won't. Um, and so I can appreciate that. I can appreciate the way she, the way she handled herself uh, while she was on the, the court. Um, and I can appreciate the fact even if I even if I disagree with some of the things she was fighting for, and even if I can disagree with some of the means, like you mentioned, with some of that judicial activism uh, that she used, I can appreciate the fact that you know she was going to stand up for what she believed was right. Um, some of those uh, some of those women's issues, some of those women's rights issues, uh, are incredibly important and are I think objectively uh, objectively correct. Uh, in in their rulings, uh, you know the 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 abortion issue, if you will, like you said, she wasn't on those two main 
two main cases. She is going to be associated with that, however, uh, just because of her legacy. Um, and so I think that's going to ruin her, uh, her, her legacy in a lot of people's minds, uh, as well as, uh, some of the, some of the rulings she was a part of with regard to, uh, LGBTQ rights. And, you know, it's something where it, it is a bit of a mixed bag, um, and I think there's, I think it's worth mentioning what is positive about her. Uh, and while there's an understanding, you've got to balance that against some of the things that uh, weren't exactly positive or negative that she did on the court. Uh, you don't necessarily have to bring those up every single time you talk about her, like I've seen some do online. It's like, you know, if, if there are things worth emulating about her, emulate those things and uh, do that with the understanding that, you know, she's not exactly Christ either. And so you don't have to emulate her entire life. Um, it, it's something that uh, that cult you mentioned around her, I believe the only Supreme Court justice I've ever seen on a bookmark at my local bookstore has been Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, the notorious RBG. Uh, and, and you've seen plenty of merchandise uh, created around that cult of personality. But I don't, you know, it's something where that seemed to grow, and I think you mentioned this, seemed to grow beyond her. I don't know that she was necessarily the one pushing for her face to be on bookmarks, if you will. Oh, I'd almost bet money that she didn't. She yeah. probably found it quite silly, in fact. But, uh, you know, it's something where there's there's plenty to admire there while also understanding that there are some pretty significant uh, philosophical warts, uh, there as, as well. Um, to my knowledge, there wasn't any sort of major scandal, uh, that took place while she was on the bench as it were. Um, and her demeanor, uh, is, is praiseworthy, even if, you know, like, like we've both brought up, we would disagree with her pretty significantly on a number of issues. Um, you know, it's there, there's some positive there, uh, to glean from. There's some positive there to emulate. And, uh, you know, it, like you said, most people when they pass leave a mixed legacy. Um, but that means if they do mean leave a, a mixed legacy, uh, that means there's something to emulate there. And I think we'd be remiss not to mention it. Sure. But, uh, I suppose this is, uh, this is kind of the problem with controversial figures, and uh, I'll use a very controversial figure to make the point. Chris, do you want to know what Ted Kaczynski was known for before the being the Unabomber? Remind me. Exactly. He was a mathematician and, quite frankly, a prodigy in the field. And were it not for his violent tendencies, he probably would be remembered as a founding figurehead of anarcho-primitivism. Because people that have read his manifesto often come away with, well, yes, he had problems, but he makes some good points. And I make that, uh, frankly, kind of absurd comparison to make the point that when there is a majorly controversial component of your life, that tends to overshadow everything else about you. And I think, for better or worse, in some people's eyes at least, 
Ginsburg's legacy as a person who was associated with the defense of the murder of the unborn is going to overshadow the fact that she was a a leader in more ways than one in advancing the role of women in society at large. And for some, it will be precisely the opposite. Well, it's, uh, it's something where, you know, I, I think we should make the effort. <laughs> we should make the effort to present someone with a mixed legacy as being someone with a mixed legacy. But, you know, what we've seen, especially in this uh, social media driven world is um, you're either presenting someone or something in an extreme uh, or you're not getting any attention, um, you know. And so I'll, I'll be curious to see moving forward how we remember. And I mentioned specifically uh, sort of getting out of the politicization because there's going to be a lot made of the positives and the negatives uh, by respective members of the media as we search for her replacement. Uh, and we will see if Trump's current nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, who was nominated at time of recording yesterday, uh, we will see if she gets uh, uh, gets confirmed uh, by the Senate. Um, Sam, who is Amy Coney Barrett? Amy Coney Barrett is, amongst other things, the person I think should have gotten the nod instead of Brett Kavanaugh, but more on that later. Um, Amy Coney Barrett is a devout Roman Catholic mother of seven who serves on, if my memory serves currently, the Ninth Circuit Court. Uh, she is a, want to say she is a native of Indiana, or at least that's where she hails from, and uh, apparently belongs to a Catholic subgroup called the People of Praise. So she is, in many respects, uh, depending on how harshly you want to say it, she is everything that the quote-unquote left should hate. Also, a correction. She serves on the United States Courts of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. So the ninth, not quite the Ninth Circuit, but she is also an alumnus of Rhodes College and the University of Notre Dame. Unsurprising, given that she is Catholic. Um, it's also worth noting here, she's 48. Mm -hmm. uh, and that matters. Uh, you know, she's got seven children and maybe one of them is grown. Um, you know, it's something at, at that age. Um, this is not someone who's had to <clears throat> quote, fight against the patriarchy for 50 years to get where she's at. Um, you know, as, as some would have probably framed her had she been, you know, maybe 20 years older. Uh, she's, she's 48. Um, and so her appointment, if, if she is confirmed in theory, she could be on the bench for 30 years, um, 35 years, maybe Certainly, right? assuming good health, assuming good health. And of course, uh, you know, we wouldn't want to wish anything ill of her or any other justice who Certainly. gets nominated. Um, but assuming good health and assuming that she doesn't, uh, step down for some other unpredictable reason, uh, at this point. You know, this is this is a significant nomination. This is uh, this is something where Trump's selection will almost certainly uh, outlive him on the court. You know, as if he were to get reelected, I mean, Trump's what in his seventies right now. If he gets reelected, he'll be in his eighties before he uh, uh, before he finishes. 
his I term? Think if my memory serves, he will be 80 or 81 as yeah. he leaves office the second and so, time. And so, you know, he's not, I mean, he will almost certainly pass uh, before if Barrett is confirmed. Uh, he's 74 Barrett, years old, actually, excuse me. So he'll be 78 or 79 yeah. as so he he's, leaves office if he's elected again. So basic math says he's 26 years older uh, than his nominee. Um, (laughs) And and so it's something where, you know, this is a significant nomination. Um, This is someone who is going to be absolutely hated by most people on the left because she represents uh, a lot about what, frankly, more people on the right espouse. Uh, She is a family woman, if you will. She is uh, very successful, um, you know, serving on that Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, She was uh, confirmed on October 31st, 2017. Um, You know, this is someone who uh, is going to present a more, uh, I suppose, originalist voice on the court um, and she is someone to the right of center on the court to the point where uh, if she is confirmed, Justice Kavanaugh probably becomes the swing vote on the court at that point. Um, he probably becomes the uh, becomes the ideological center of the court at that point. Um, and you probably will see a lot more six to three decisions on uh, various issues as a result. Um, and so... It's, it's interesting to me for just just a ton of reasons uh, how this will go uh, uh, go about happening um, you know because Trump made a point of nominating a woman uh, to take Ginsburg's place uh, and while you know on the face of it there are going to be some who look up and say you know well why would he make a point why would he limit himself like that I'm not one of those people who's going to say that uh, but he does paint himself into a box. At the same time, he, you know, he's nominating someone who is eminently qualified, uh, who you really can't question her qualifications. It's just a matter of, do you like where she is ideologically? That's really uh, the only gripe people get to have with her, assuming there's not some sort of scandal that comes up. And I would not be surprised to see one produced through the media, frankly. But, um, you know, assuming that doesn't happen, I mean... What's what's not to like other than her ideology here? This is someone who uh, this is someone who is eminently qualified. This is someone who has uh, whose resume speaks for itself. This is someone who up to this point, as far as I know, has avoided major scandal. This is someone who has handled herself well. She's been through, uh, you know, the Senate confirmation hearings when she was uh, nominated to that Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. I saw some footage Uh, of that the other day. And if you take her at her word, she's not going to be a judicial activist on the court. Um, You know, I, I, I'll be curious to see what the media tries to do with this because there's not a lot uh, to dislike about her nomination, at least as far as her resume is concerned. Well, that's precisely the thing, though. It's not going to have much to do with her credentials. It's going to center around her faith and her family. To borrow the words of Diane Feinstein when she was interviewed for the Seventh Court, the dogma lives loudly within you. 
And Dianne Feinstein should have been removed from the Senate the instant that she said that. But they, the, the, but Congress doesn't seem to care as long as you're badgering Catholics about their faith or relatively conservative evangelicals. But that's a different subject at the moment. So that idea of her being not just a generic milquetoast practicing Catholic but a Catholic who is proud of her Catholicism, who is proud of the, of the tradition in which she resides, and isn't afraid to come out and say, yes, I'm a, Roman, I'm a Catholic. Uh, that terrifies people for the same reason that it terrifies anyone when a Christian of any flavor is actually willing to come out and say, in politics, yes, I'm a devout Christian, and I actually believe the things I say I believe. See Bernie Sanders grilling a guy for an article he wrote with a gospel coalition about Muslims and also other scares. Uh, wish to this day I could actually remember because it made me so mad that it just got blocked from my memory. But when a nominee for some such position was asked, do you consider yourself a practicing Roman Catholic? So there's all of that. But uh, there's also going to be attacks on her family because, as you may know, Chris, she has adopted two children from Haiti. And uh, I happen to be a big fan of uh, international adoptions when it's possible because I think it's a great way for people who want to adopt to be able to reach across the world and make another person's life substantially better if you were willing and able to make the sacrifice necessary to make that happen. But uh, she's come under scrutiny from that to an extent. I don't want to say it's been blasted everywhere. But one Ibram X. Kendi, uh, an uh, anti-racism scholar, uh, put out on Twitter yesterday, I believe, if not yesterday, then Saturday, tweets essentially accusing Barrett and her husband of only adopting those two children to give themselves cover for their racism and talked about how this is actually an act of colonialism and that in adopting these children, they didn't make the kids' lives better. They just stripped the parents of those children of their humanity and ability to actually raise their kids. And I read that and I think that's just insanity. That That is a, I am going to hate you no matter what because I have already decided that you are evil and I am going to work backwards from that conclusion. It's the, what I call, look at that woman eating crackers like she owns the place syndrome, where when you already hate someone, anything that they do is going to make you mad, including just eating crackers in your presence. Um, I don't believe... Kendi has any adopted children. And so while I don't believe people who don't have adopted children uh, should have their views on adoption completely ignored, um, it, it's something where that voice, frankly, isn't as valuable. It's uh, Well, I think and, it should be ignored for other reasons, but that's sure, fair. Sure, but that's, I, I don't, obviously, I, I can run into some issues if I apply that consistently across all issues. Um but with, with adoption, there's something to be said about the process you have to go through uh, just to even put yourself in a position to be adopt or to be uh, an adopted parent. Um, and let alone actually welcoming those kids into uh, your, your life. And so, you know, I, I'd be curious, 
uh, it's something we probably won't find out until those kids are adults. But, you know, at some point, those those kids, especially if uh, Justice Barrett is nominated uh, to or is confirmed rather to the court. Um, I'd be curious if there's interviews that take place that, you know, where the kids are able to describe their life living, you know, uh, as adopted kids of a justice of the court of appeals and later on a Supreme court justice. Um, I, I think that'll be very interesting because uh, I think their perspective, once they're able to articulate it will become very valuable. Um, so I, I was looking uh, online. I've got the vote pulled up for when she was, uh, when she was confirmed to the seventh circuit court of appeals. Um and I've got the individual votes pulled up. Uh, it was 54 to 42 with four uh, individuals not voting. Um, the four who did not vote uh, were John McCain. Uh, and uh, I'll keep my piece about John McCain. But... Uh, John McCain, uh, I think it's Claire McCaskill uh, from Missouri, Democrat from Missouri. Um, uh, Bob uh, Menendez from New Jersey. And uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, and so those are your four who didn't vote. That's an independent, two Democrats, and a Republican. I'm surprised um, that Sanders didn't vote no. Like, do, do you have, like, the actual vote? Was it just didn't vote, or does it list a reason why they didn't vote? So it, just just says, un, it just says not, not present. Okay. just says not voting. Um, which, uh, you know, you wonder if he... I'm not sure if there was a medical issue at the time that caused him to not be present. Um, but, but I'm looking at this um, and there were uh, three Democrats who actually voted yes uh, at this period of, of time. Um, the first is Joe Donnelly uh, from Indiana. Uh, the second is uh, is it Steve Manchin? Uh, Joe Manchin uh, from West Virginia. And then the third, and this is one I find kind of interesting, especially given its proximity to the 2016 election, uh, is Tim Kaine, uh, former vice presidential candidate from Virginia. And, and he so voted yes? He, he voted yes. Those were three yeses. Interesting. Um, Two of those guys, I think, are still in the Senate. And so if they all of a sudden vote no, I think it's worth exploring what's changed. Um, you know, Tim Kaine, I know, at least, is still in the Senate. And so, you know, you look at that, I think for all 54 who voted yes, at least for those who are still there, and a couple of them uh, have changed, um, trying to find the there would be at least one senator from Alabama uh, Shelby and strange one of those is gone now and was replaced by Doug Jones who's who's there um, but you know for the, those who are still there I think it's worth asking if their vote changes why um, you know has what significant development in the past you know three years has led you to believe that this person is, is all of a sudden unqualified to be on the bench? Um, well, it's not just going to be, and I can try to answer this, or at least speculate about why in good faith, because the Seventh Court is not the Supreme Court. Sure, sure. 
And so that would kind of be there is a difference of gravitas there. Uh, but also there's the fact that until you get to the Ninth Circuit Court, the other courts simply aren't as highly politicized as others. Uh, when you, if something comes through the Seventh Court, there's still the Eighth, the Ninth, and the Supreme that you can go through to have things overturned and reviewed. And so, but if Barrett's at on the Supreme Court and there's a 6-3 decision, you're going to have to wait a decade or two before that can change, minimum. And this mm-hmm. also brings up another question. The thing is, uh, people were talking about, oh, well, Trump may get to nominate a third candidate because Ginsburg may pass. And everyone seems to have forgotten about the existence of one Stephen G. Breyer. Do you want to know when he was born, Chris? Um, sure. 1938. The man's in his 80s. And that's nothing against him. He see, in his photo, he seems quite lively and spry. He seems like a jolly fellow. But he's in his 80s. Clarence Thomas was born in 1948. Uh, Justice Alito, 1950. Sotomayor, 1954. Which, of course, women tend to have longer lifespans, so that's not as significant. And uh, uh, Roberts, 1955. These people are closing in on the years where health issues ramp up and become much more serious. And again, like they're all reasonably healthy people. But like while everyone was freaking out about Ginsburg, I was kind of wondering, what if we just get a plot twist and something happens, God forbid, to Breyer? There is a very there's a very real chance that if Trump is reelected in 2020, that he his legacy will be that oh, you cut he, out there as a president single-handedly. You, yeah. you, you cut out there. There's a very real chance uh, if Trump is reelected in 2020 that that he will get to single-handedly shape the court for the next two to three decades because of people stepping down or passing away from old age. And that is a terrifying concept for a lot of people, especially on the left. But, and by all means, bring us back to what you were wanting to talk about as you need to, but I think this brings us to a very important point of discussion, and that's the fact that the Supreme Court is not a co-equal branch with the legislative and the executive anymore. So what would you do to, uh, to fix that, to fix that inequity? That's the thing. I'm not sure what can be done. And I'm sure that there are things that have been proposed, but the fact that people are freaking out about this and the fact that people freak out about presidential elections, it really kind of points out just how significant people think the executive and the judicial branches are especially. And that should make people stop and wonder, wait, why do these groups of people, one of whom is elected, one of whom is appointed, why do they have as much power as they do? And this is in part why I was thrilled, as controversial as it may be, after a while about the Trump presidency. Because, of course, because of my political views, anything that makes people lose faith in the legitimacy of the political powers that be is a good thing. And so I'm just waiting for someone to stop and say, wait a minute, why does it matter if 
I, I have enough people that agree with me on the courts. Why do I want them to have that kind of power? Because eventually people on the court aren't going to agree with me. Yep. Well, that eventually, you know, of course the scary thing for those on the, the left is, you know, you get the opposite situation where if, if, uh, if, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, then yeah, the opposite situation where plenty of people disagree, why should that matter? Um, well, the eventually may be 30 years might not be, I mean, (laughs) uh, but you know, this is a situation where there's a lasting impact, a lasting legacy. Um, you know, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett aren't particularly old. Uh, Gorsuch is Gorsuch is, and so he, you wouldn't exactly describe him as, as young, but 67 you, correction. Excuse me. Yeah. I was going to say he's born in the, uh, what the sixties, 1967. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's, uh, that's, that's a situation where he's a little bit older. Um, you know, he's certainly not in his forties, but y- you look at that and, um, you know, he's still, I mean, you would not expect him uh, to be uh, removed from the court in one way or another in the next decade, for instance. Um, that, that would not be the expectation even with him and with uh, Justices Kavanaugh and potentially uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, if, if she's confirmed to the court, I mean, you would look at probably two decades minimum for each of them. Um you know, barring scandal or tragedy or just personally wanting to, you know, step down. Um, and so, you know, I, I would tend to agree, uh, just, just carte blanche that the court has too much power. Um, you know, too much that we care about. Um, you know, there, I mean, I think, you know, I think the view that the court holds that much power is correct, and I think it is also correct to be skeptical of the court having that much power. Um, like you, I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, you know, it's something where, you know, if, if there was some way to, you know, objectively uh, look at the court's views, that would be one thing, but that's that's theory more than anything else. I mean, you there's no sort of uh, objective litmus test for what different justices believe uh, on the court. And even if that were the case, beliefs change. Um, they move around. Uh, I certainly don't want those Supreme Court justices to be elected. Uh, I would think that would be wholly inappropriate, um, given that, you know, not not in theory, mind you. I don't actually think that's inappropriate in theory, but given all of the corruption that takes place in elections, given the tampering that can take place in elections. And frankly, you know, alongside that corruption, given all the money involved in elections, um, I, I mean, I don't want uh, different nonprofit organizations to start endorsing uh, Supreme court justices that, that does not sound like a good time for this country. Um, but, I would only disagree on the point of election in part because, well, I think elections are illegitimate anyway, but that's far afield. I would still stick with appointments, but have a term limit, like a lengthy term, of course, sure. because of the precedent of serving for decades. But like, say, of course, like 
let's say Barrett is appointed, okay, fine. The day she turns 75, start, start filling out her retirement paperwork. She served honorably for 27 years at that point, or 26 years, give or take. So, okay, fine. Let's say 25 years, you step down. And if there's just a, let's say, a 60-40 vote, you can serve another five years. Something like that. I don't, I don't know if that's perfect. In fact, I know it's not perfect because I came up with it. But just something like that that emphasizes that they are to be people who are not directly connected to the electoral process, who are supposed to be outside of the election side of politics and are supposed to be the persons who are tasked with the consistent interpretation and application of law. And, you know, it's something where something that emphasizes, like you said, you know, being outside of that while still recognizing the need for this. There's something about it being a lifetime appointment that rubs a lot of people, myself included, the wrong way. Well, um, um, technically, Chris, it is not a lifetime appointment. It is a, it is a appointment uh, to be served during good behavior. I can't stand people that point that out because it's that a, is lifetime a lifetime appointment. Yes, because during good behavior means as long as they don't get impeached, get removed otherwise, and still choose to remain on the court, it's functionally a lifetime appointment. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's something where you, you look at that and like you said, I, I don't have the perfect answer to this, but getting rid of the concept of it being li- a lifetime appointment functionally, it might not make that much of a difference. Right. Um, you know, if you're talking a 25 year term, well, that I mean, you know, Justice Gins- Ginsburg served, was it 27 I she was so, yes. Give confirmed in 1990. I mean, you're not talking, at least in most cases, about a huge difference there. Um, but how you frame how they serve matters almost as much as how they actually serve when it comes to length. Right. Um, you know, if if the idea is we're not getting rid of this person until they croak, uh, then you have all these conspiracy theories run rampant when a Supreme Court justice actually does pass. Um, uh, yes, I do remember speculation about Scalia being murdered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would not be surprised on the far left corners of the internet um, that I don't venture off into ever uh, to see some of that about Justice Ginsburg. I don't know that, but I know how people are. Right. Uh, and so, you know, you, you're able to at least get rid of that if you're, or at least mitigate that. You're not going to ever fully get rid of it, but you can at least mitigate it if you say, okay, you know, two decades. That's that's a lot. I mean, that's five presidential elections, um, but two decades, you know, just uh, uh, two decades. And then, you know, if uh, if the Senate confirms you and if the president, uh, I, 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 frankly, given that nominating Supreme Court justices is part of his or her job, um, I, I would not be opposed to both the Senate and the president having to work together to sort of reaffirm someone's appointment, maybe two decades in. Um, but some sort of evaluation process sure. uh, where there's an understanding this isn't permanent. Um, you know, and, and I do believe it should be significantly longer uh, than, you know, say senator's terms, because otherwise, I mean, 
you know, uh, uh, if it's not, then all of a sudden the, the election. Otherwise you, you run into the Hoppian problem of democracies. Hmm. Explain that. I'm not familiar. Okay, Hans Hermann Hoppe is a, I believe he is a German individual, I could be mistaken. He lives in the States currently, but he is most well known for his anarcho-capitalist works, of course, including one, Democracy, the God that Failed, wherein he posits that monarchy is actually superior to anarchy. This is why sometimes, and this is some very deep insider baseball viewers, I apologize, or listeners, excuse me, I apologize, but sometimes you will see a symbol uh, for anarchists that goes something like the anarchist symbol, greater than symbol, a crown, greater than balance. And that means anarchy is better than monarchy, which is better than democracy. And Hoppe, I think, convincingly argues that while anarchy is the preferred ideal and it's the point to which we should peacefully strive, monarchy is preferred over democracy because in democracies, there is no incentive to build a lasting legacy. There is only incentive to accrue power and wealth while you are in office and then leave with as much as you can. Whereas a monarch at least ostensibly, has two options. He has to serve well and keep the people happy because otherwise he will be replaced by force. Or he has to think, ostensibly at least, I am leaving my realm behind to my heir. And my heir is generally at least someone that I have some kind of regard for if for nothing else but the fact that they're one of my children or that they are someone who is married to one of my children or even they are someone that I have personally selected because I hold them in high regard. And so for the good of my heir and for the good of the people I have ruled over, because I'm going to die, I can't take it with me, and I've lived in luxury all my life as the monarch, I should strive to leave something behind worth having. And so, does that always work out? No, not necessarily. But democracy already has enough problems that monarchy being superior to it isn't, to me at least, a hard argument to make. But because of the incentive to accrue power, democracies inevitably have issues. And having Supreme Court justices have very short appointments would exacerbate that, I think. Uh, Chris, you there? Sorry, I had myself muted. Ha! Oh, um, it's all good. Some something I've been pondering uh, while we while we've been having this discussion is the fact that Supreme Court justices are only really, um, we'll say, uh, two steps away from being directly elected. Anyway, maybe three, depending on how you want to count. Um, but the election of the Senate and the election of the president. Um, those in combination uh, determine who ends up on the bench. Um, you know, and so if the 
if the president uh, is someone I want in office and the Senate is majority people I want in office. Now, granted, I don't get a say in all but two of those senators. Um, But if those are people I want in office, then I can reasonably, not safely necessarily, but reasonably assume uh, that the person I want to serve on the bench is going to, or at least someone who embodies what I want in a Supreme Court justice is going to be on the bench uh, should an opening come up. And, you know, that that's, I mean, that's a big reason a lot of people voted for Trump in 2016. It's not really because they like Trump. It's because they looked at the bench and saw, hey, you know, there's one we've got to deal with almost right away. Uh, there's one opening we're going to deal with almost right away. And there could be anywhere from, you know, two to four more that open up while he's in office. Um, and, and the one that gets neglected um, between like between the cooperation of uh, one Mitch Cocaine McConnell and uh, Donald Trump. Um, uh, he, they've put about 315 people on various courts throughout the country. Including Amy Coney Barrett uh, in 2017. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, people, I mean, it, if, if Supreme court justices uh, weren't an issue of the president, if it weren't something for uh, he or she to uh, deal with, then I'm not convinced he wins, frankly. Um, you know, if that's not a part of the equation, because there are some people who voted for him purely based off of that reason. Right. You know, and so it's already only two or three steps removed from being a direct election to the Supreme Court anyway. What moving those term limits up, it, should there be term limits, uh, if it were, say, a decade or, say, you know, even a little bit less than that, all of a sudden, you're voting for your senator based off of uh, their alignment as far as Supreme Court justices. Um, you know, given that those are the people who directly vote on uh, on nominees, all of a sudden you are voting for your senator uh, much more based off of who they would confirm in a Senate hearing, uh, in a Senate vote for a Supreme Court nominee uh, than you would otherwise. And that, that becomes very dangerous. Uh, in that case, because at that point, you're only one step really removed uh, from just directly electing uh, Supreme Court justices anyway. Certainly. And, and so it, it's something where, you know, it, it's healthy for the Supreme Court uh, to have a long term. It just that term needs a finite end that isn't dependent on health or external circumstances. Um you know, doing that, even if it doesn't necessarily functionally change how the court rules, uh, it the appearance of that matters a lot. Um, you know, how how people view these justices would change in such a way. Well, you know, they they'll serve their term and then they're and then they'll ride off into the sunset or, or, or whatever. And so I, I want to circle all the way back around to something you brought up earlier. You talked about um, how you wanted you thought Amy Coney Barrett should have been uh, the nominee when Justice Kavanaugh uh, was nominated. Uh, elaborate on that a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, uh, this is going to be one of those, uh, some people aren't going to think very much of me after this. Uh, uh, quite frankly, after seeing what they did to Brett Kavanaugh and how they treated him, and here's the thing. 
best case scenario for the left is that they used a woman's very real, very painful, and very disturbing accusations of sexual assault as a political weapon. And they didn't care about that woman beyond her ability to keep someone off the court that they didn't like. Worst case scenario, they put all of that out to slander someone because they didn't want him on the court. And so after all of that, especially because Brett Kavanaugh, let's be honest, was a glass of lukewarm water judicially. And people would say, well, they should Trump should put Merrick Garland as a as a sort of olive branch to the left. One, no. Two, he did. His name is Brett Kavanaugh. Brett and Merrick served on the court served on courts together and agreed over 95% of the time. That was Trump's olive branch of saying, I want to put someone forth. Like I already put a staunch originalist on the court in Gorsuch. Someone that y'all weren't particularly thrilled with, but he was confirmed anyway. Here is my middle-of-the-road pick. Someone that Republicans will like, and someone who may not be ideal for Democrats, but is very much in line with people that you liked, like Garland. And they still tore him down, and they still found any reason they could to try to keep him out. And so, Brett should have said, this isn't worth it, I'm stepping down. And Trump should have said, like, he should have just got up on the mic, looked all of them dead in the eye and said, I tried to be reasonable with you people. Now you're going to get what you deserve good and hard. I'm nominating Amy Coney Barrett. Have fun smearing a Catholic with seven kids. And now they don't get to complain about decency. They don't get to complain about norms. They don't get to complain about any of that. I don't care. I hope that Donald Trump gets to replace the entire Supreme Court during his presidency, and I hope that I get to collect the tears of every single leftist and Democrat in the country as he does so. And I hope that Amy Coney Barrett, as soon as she gets confirmed, looks into the camera and just mouths, say goodbye to Roe v. Wade. It's not going to happen, I know, because she's not a moron. But that's what I want because they're getting what they deserve, and I hope they get it good and hard for the next 30 years. So I, while you were talking, uh, while you were talking, I looked up the the Senate votes for Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, um, and uh, <clears throat> so looking at this, uh, looking at the vote for Kavanaugh, there are. Do you remember what the vote for Kavanaugh was? Uh, it is a bit more recent than Gorsuch, like you indicated. Sam? Sorry, I was muted while I was letting you speak. Uh, I don't yeah. recall. Uh, it's 50, 50 to 48. Yep. Um, I knew it was very but, close, like razor thin. Uh, Murkowski from uh, Alaska, uh, which is basically the same thing as saying a Republican, voted president. Uh, and Danes from Montana uh, did not vote. That Steve Danes, Republican from Montana, uh, did not vote, and I don't know the circumstances of, of why he did not vote. Right. Uh, otherwise, it was split along party lines. And I think did was, Jeff Flake vote yes for, uh, for him? Uh, Jeff Flake's a Republican, or he was. 
Um, well, but Jeff Flake was also Jeff Flake. So, cause I remember he was, he tried to, I don't have time to get into all the reasons I can't stand Jeff Flake, but, uh, Basically, like I remember him doing a lot of posturing and grandstanding during all of that, especially about, well, there needs to be an FBI investigation. Yeah, they could have had several of them in the two months that Diane Feinstein sat on that letter from Christine Blasey Ford. Anyway, continue. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just scanning over the votes. Uh, yeah, it looks like it was split perfectly along party lines, except for the two who didn't, uh, who either voted president or, or didn't vote. Okay. Um, oh, excuse me. Uh, there's the one. Um, and the reason it was, uh, you know, what gave them, uh, the 50th vote, uh, Steve Manchin, uh, from West Virginia. That's right. Cause he's a, uh, he's a Democrat who's representing a very conservative area of the country uh, right. in West Virginia. And so, you know, uh, Kavanaugh, who, like you said, is the olive branch, uh, was confirmed 50 to 48. Um, now here's the one I know you're not going to remember because I, I, I had zero shot of remembering this. Do you remember what Gorsuch's vote was? I'm going to shoot for 57 to 43. 54, 45 and one, uh, Isaacson Republican. Isaacson from Georgia, uh, did not vote. And again, I don't know the circumstances of that. It could be. You know, if there's a medical situation where he's not able to vote, of course, you know, you don't want to assume ill intent or anything like sure, that. Sure, of course. Of course. Um, but notably here, um, uh, so 54 yays, uh, all Republicans except Joe Donnelly, Steve Manchin, and I'm trying to see if there's anyone else, uh, Heitkamp from North Dakota. And is that it? Yeah. So three Democrats voted no or voted yes. Um, no Republicans voted no. And so, yeah, I mean, so the, the olive branch was more hotly contested than the very clearly, generally more conservative guy. Um, you know, now granted we've talked about some of Gorsuch's rulings, uh, in recent months that we probably wouldn't agree with, um, but in reality, he's uh, he he he's seen as being a more conservative, uh, and I would say he's arguably the most credentialed member of the court. He has a doctor of philosophy, a DPhil from the Oxford University, in addition to his law degree. And so, this is someone who who uh, you know he. He may be. He may have the better resume, but ideologically, he's further to the right than than Gorsuch is. And yet, you know, he uh, he went through. There wasn't nearly as much of a hubbub, in part because there was no scandal that appeared out of thin air. Um, you know, Gorsuch certainly got grilled, and rightfully so. I think these justices should be grilled. Sure, sure. Uh, and, these, and he handled yeah. himself well. I think. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I uh, I'm not necessarily terrifically thrilled with how Kavanaugh handled himself uh, in every way, but he also didn't necessarily deserve to be put through the, uh, put through everything he went through either. Uh, Oh, no, no. He arguably could have, but the thing is he did better than I would have because I don't recall the Senator's name, but there was one that kept interrupting him. And I distinctly recall thinking, I don't have Brett's patience because I would have just at some point said, Senator, 
do you want to talk or do you want me to answer your question? If you want to talk, fine, but you need to tell me right now whether you want me to answer your question or whether you want to talk. If you want Was me it? to talk, you need to shut up. Um, I don't know if this is the... If if she did this, but Kamala Harris was a part of that hearing. I do know that. Um, no, this was a man. I, if because he kept just, will you ask for an investigate? Will you, uh, just when Kavanaugh was saying, "I'll do anything," he just, "Will you ask for an investigation?" And I was just thinking, I would have just told this guy to shut up and let me talk. Eventually. Yep. Granted, I would have done the same to a lot of people, but I'm also not a very polite person as far as that sort of thing goes. But anyway, enough about me. And so, you know, that's something where, you know, again, I, he probably would have handled it. He probably did handle himself better than either of us would have. That doesn't, you know, at the same time, could he have done better? Sure. Um, sure. You know, I think, I think the best case scenario for a Supreme Court justice uh, in that situation for a, for a nominee that is in that situation, regardless of what's being thrown against them is to frankly be as cool as possible while there, uh, to be as unemotional as possible while there. Um, cause I mean, you know, the, the optics of it didn't look good. Even if you understand why he's reacting the way he's reacting, um, there, I would argue that as far as demeanor is concerned and as far as reacting emotionally is concerned, there is a higher standard. There should be a higher standard for Supreme Court justices than for anyone else in any government office uh, in the country. Um, I think that argument can be made in good faith. And so with with that, could he have done better? Sure. But, you know, he certainly didn't deserve, uh, you know, his name being dragged through the mud. Uh, and if something like you said, if. If they were sitting on something which is legitimate, which I think both of us probably find a little questionable, at least. But if definitely, if he if they were sitting something on uh, sitting on something legitimate, like you said, they they should have dealt with it immediately. Yeah. Um, oh so, no, that's the thing. Like I am one hundred percent on the side of if Brett Kavanaugh was indeed guilty of sexual assault, he should have been summarily executed. Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, I know that they didn't take it seriously because they weren't calling for his execution. They were just calling to get him out of. They weren't even calling for a criminal investigation. They just didn't want him on the court. Yeah. So again, I don't care what Democrats think anymore because they have burned all of their bridges and they all of their credibility with him. Just you know, just go away quietly, and we'll not talk about this anymore. Even yeah. though this is potentially something that. Uh, I'm not going to put it in quite ex- as extreme of terms as you just did, but it's something that definitely, definitely warrants attention. If it did happen, it would warrant attention if he was, you know, if he was up for uh, manager at McDonald's, let alone Supreme Court justice. Absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's it, it's uh, it's hard not to look at that, and yeah, they're 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 abusing what is potentially a very ser- serious situation just for. Uh, political leverage. That's, that's sickening. Um, I, I want to talk to you about one more thing. It is not the thing I thought we were going to talk about, uh, but it is something I think worth addressing. Uh, and that is um, Republicans, uh, particularly Republicans in the Senate, as well as Donald Trump, uh, given some of his, uh, some of his concerns he voiced at different debates in 2016. Um, Republicans in the Senate are sort of between a rock and a hard place when it comes to uh, how they handle Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, given uh, the comments they made about not pursuing uh, the confirmation of Merrick Garland in 2016. 
uh, about how they made a point of putting off that confirmation. They were in power uh, and they were able to do it, uh, at least in the Senate, putting off that nomination uh, because as everyone, uh, as basically every Republican senator said at that point, you know, we're not going to do this during an election year. It's not the right thing to do. Um, and now we're here in 2020. We're, I think, five weeks out from an election, maybe six. Give or take. Uh, yeah. Um, and I'm getting the impression that we might know if this, we might know if Amy Coney Barrett is going to be confirmed before election day, uh, based off of how Republicans are talking about this nomination. Uh, I certainly don't think Trump nominates Amy Coney Barrett uh, with the understanding that she's not going to be confirmed until like February or something. Um, and so, Sam, I'm curious uh, what you're thinking about that. I have some thoughts I'll share in just a moment, but I, I, I want to get yours before I sort of go off on this. Um, I'm going to sound like a smart aleck and someone that is not empathetic and a bunch of other uh, things that basically mean I'm a big meanie head. Uh, but when someone objects, I just, I want to look at them and say, cry more lib. Like I'm, like I said, I'm at the point where I don't care to listen to Democrats lecture me on norms, on decency, on standards, on any of that. Hmm. If they say, well, well, Dem the Republicans said in 2016, yeah, that was before you tried to publicly humiliate Brett Kavanaugh for the crime of being nominated by President Trump. I don't care what you think anymore. Good talk. We're going to nominate Amy Coney Barrett. Have fun. Uh, so I'm going to go the other direction here. Um, I look at, and I've seen a lot of uh, clips from 2016 played alongside clips from now, and that's definitely some uh, uh, some activist editing in some cases. But, man, I, I, I cannot overlook some of the hypocrisy on the part of Republican senators. Sure. Uh, namely, Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz uh, versus where they were at in in 2016, um, you know, in 2016, there was this massive push from the Republican Party to not confirm Merrick Garland, to not even have that discussion until after the 2016 election. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's something where in the moment it was frustrating for people on the left because, you know, this is not how things are supposed to be done or something to that effect. But it probably was perceived as being a little bit amusing because the understanding basically until election day was that Hillary Clinton was going to win and either Merrick Garland was going to be confirmed or someone more conservative uh, or more liberal rather uh, would have been put up. Frankly, I think the Senate probably, if Trump loses the election, the Senate instantly moves to confirm Merrick Garland, uh, given that he, uh, I, I'm not sure he would have been all that uh, bad compared to someone else that uh, President Obama or uh, thankfully not President Clinton uh, would have nominated. In many uh, ways, I could I could understand the argument, at least being made in good faith, that Merrick Garland was Obama's attempt at an olive branch. Yeah, and, and, and this is something, it's worth, just on a brief tangent before I go back to my rant, um, it, it's worth noting that presidents don't always uh, nominate people who ideologically agree with them. Um, you know, President Bush nominated uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor um, and that, you know, you're not exactly, I, I mean, when, when you look at these nominees, they don't, I mean, they're not just simply puppets for the president. Um, you know, in part because 
you do have to have quite the resume to be legitimately considered. And if that is the case, uh, you know, that narrows down the pool consider considerably. Um, but in part because, you know, at least in previous times, it, it, it's something where serving on the court honorably was valued a bit higher than someone's ideology. <laughs> That's not the case necessarily now. Um, but it's something we've seen evidenced in, in the past. And it's something I can appreciate even if I don't like the results of uh, how that plays out. Um, but getting back to what really set me off about this is, is there was an interview with, I think Ted Cruz, and I'm not sure the, uh, I'm not sure the media outlet where he basically tried to get out in front of it and say, look, I know you guys are going to bring up what, what we said in 2016 and, and, you know, different things we said, but you know, it's 2020 and, and, and I can't help but think, look, now from your perspective, Sam, I can appreciate that the, the Kavanaugh hearing sort of changed things. Um, maybe I'm ignorant to it, but I'm not hearing those politicians say that. Um, what I'm hearing now is basically this is our candidate. We're we're going to force you know we have a constitutional duty uh, to take care of this. And the the hypocrisy between 2016 and 2020 is astounding. It I mean it is absolutely mind blowing. And what I hope it does for Republicans in office or more so for potential Republicans and potential senators in general, is in 2016, you know, just don't come up with a lame excuse for why you don't want to confirm that guy. Say, just simply say, look, we're in power and we don't have to confirm it. You know, we don't, we don't have to do this. We can put this off for whatever reason we feel like. That doesn't play well uh, uh, politically, but at least it's honest. Um, whereas the, the, the hypocrisy, because the Senate is mostly the same as it was back in 2016, you know, by virtue of six year terms uh, and senators ending up serving, you know, serving in the Senate for quite a while. Um, the Senate is mostly the same. You've, you've got senators who have not been in an election since 2016, at least, and, and some even longer. And so if that's the case, ju just be honest. Like, you know, I, I, and I'm not seeing a lot of that. I'm seeing nothing to justify why this is different. I can appreciate you offering what you did, but like I said, I, I don't, I don't see a uh, Republican Senator saying that at all. Um, and so the hypocrisy is absolutely astounding. To be clear, as far as I can tell with what I know about Amy Coney Barrett, I would like for her to be confirmed. Um, I am just frankly ashamed of the hypocrisy it's going to take for her to get her confirmed, given that, you know, frankly, them with Republicans holding power in the Senate, if she is confirmed, it's, it's hypocritical compared to what they said back in 2016. Sure, uh, but and and what I'm going to offer in response is less a justification and more a concession that that is a problem, with the caveat that, well, this is more or less the way politics is done now. Politics has always been a sham and has been really shady and greasy. But 2016 rolls around. Donald Trump surprises everyone. 
And he's sworn in. And within a month of him getting sworn in, we have people saying we're going to impeach that expletive. And um, even now with Pelosi uh, saying like, well, we're going to use whatever arrows we have on our quiver to stop this. And again, none of that makes it makes the mealy mouthedness okay. But I don't think it would be any better if Ted Cruz just came out and said, look, after what y'all did to Brett Kavanaugh, I don't care anymore. I'm going to just shove the knife between your shoulder blades every chance I get, and I'm going to smile while I do it. Now, granted, that's what someone like me that doesn't care would say. That's something I could honestly see Ron Paul saying during his retirement address. But guys like Ted Cruz, and to an extent like Lindsey Graham and some like them, they are starting to understand that this sort of being a dignified loser doesn't work and doesn't get results. But they can't quite bring themselves to drop the veneer of dignity yet. And I look forward to when I look forward to when Lindsey Graham reawakens because ah, oh, those were a great few days in Washington when Lindsey Graham went super saiyan during the Kavanaugh hearings. But um that I think is really what it boils down to that they don't want to be dignified losers anymore. They're tired of getting kicked around by Democrats who hold over their heads this well, you don't want to pe- think you don't want people to think you're mean, do you? They don't care anymore, but they're not at the point where they can just come out and say they don't care anymore. That doesn't make the hypocrisy angle a better look or anything like that, but perhaps that is an explanation for why they're going about it the way that they are, why they're framing it the way that they are. Well, and that's an explanation, frankly, that they can't say publicly. It just... I, I don't know. I wasn't real excited about what happened in 2016, and... You know, there was talk, there was talk about how potentially it could come back to bite them if they're in a similar situation later on with one of their own nominees. Sure. Um, and I think the only surprise is that it happened this quickly. Uh, uh, the- oh, Mitch McConnell told them in 2012, I believe, when Democrats moved to abolish, not the filibuster, but when they moved to make decisions like that just a simple majority vote, he told them, you're going to regret it. And you're going to regret these rule changes that you make because you can't fathom the idea that eventually there are going to be more of us than there are of you. And now Mitch McConnell sits upon a throne of skulls carried forward by 315 plus federal appointments. And it's, uh, I, I, I don't know. I am, uh, the whole thing is just, if it weren't, if the Supreme Court weren't such an important appointment, it would be a little laughable how everything's been handled. But because of its place in our government, it is an incredibly important thing. Um, and I, I just, it, it's frustrating. Um, it, it's not frustrating. It's not disappointing in the sense that, or it's, rather, it's not surprising in the sense that, you know, we've got politicians who are going to uh, change how they handle things based off of who is up for a given position or whatever the topic is at hand. It's just, it is disappointing, I guess. It, it, it's it's disappointing the astonishing lack of consistency. Um, and so I, I don't know. I'll be curious to see what happens. I hope she gets confirmed. Um, I would, I really do hope she gets confirmed sometime in the next month. 
Uh, we'll see if that happens. But again, you know, senators are in or Republicans are in power in the Senate. As long as all of them uh, vote along party lines, she's going to be confirmed. And even if one defects, as long as the other 50 do vote, um, you know, Mike Pence is going to confirm her. Yeah, he's going to be the tiebreaker. But I would just, I would put forward, and I don't say this to like glibly dismiss your disappointment and frustration, because while I do not share them, I don't think they're illegitimate. But uh, what I would recommend is, both to you and to our viewers who are in a similar place, embrace the chaos. And I'm not joking when I say that. I know it might sound silly, but embrace the chaos. Once you just loosen up and just let the chaos flow through you, you will find that it rejuvenates you after a while. And you will learn to love the madness. And you will perhaps find that politics is fun again, like I do. Yeah, it'll take me a bit to get there. Um, so, all right, well, is there anything else you want to uh, you want to discuss? Uh, can we spend a few minutes talking about Donald Trump's tax returns? Because apparently that's a thing again. Oh, uh, I'll let you do that, and I will... Uh, I will comment as I see fit, but I'll, I'll let you dive on into that. All right. So a few things, and I, I'll make this very brief because I'm sure that most people can figure out what my opinions are. Uh, one, they tried this in 2016. Literally no one cared. Like the Times published, not the exact same article, of course, like not verbatim. Certainly they wouldn't, the, the failing New York Times wouldn't even fail that hard. But um. They published a story about Trump's tax returns, and periodically Trump's tax returns would come up. And I remember Rachel Maddow, you know, saying, "We've got them. We've got some some of Trump's tax returns." And then opening them up, looking them over, and just being stunned because they were perfectly normal and in order for a person who earns as much as Donald Trump does per year. But the controversy this time is that Donald Trump didn't pay as much as we think he should have in taxes because he did, wrote things off as losses and he did all of this and that. And, and people are trying to do the whole, oh, he, the taxes, he doesn't pay his taxes. Okay, one, no one should be taxed. Taxation is theft enforced at gunpoint by the federal government and at your state level by your state governments. If they want your money that badly, they should be able to convince you to voluntarily give it to causes that matter. They could even do raffles like we used to do. Real thing, look it up. Two, for the people that say, but without taxes, how will we do X? One, those things usually aren't the government's job. Two, we did just fine before the 20th century without an income tax. If y'all are as smart as y'all act like y'all are, you can figure it out. Three... Even beside all of that, no one likes paying taxes. Even the people that push for more taxes don't like paying taxes. They try to figure out every way that they can to pay less in taxes. And so every time someone complains about Trump's taxes, I say, okay, great. So when are you going to start voluntarily giving more than you absolutely have to every April 15th? And they always clam up because they're not going to. Because it's always, they want the people that they resent for having more money than them to give more. They never wanted to come back on them. Even though there is someone out there that they have more money than. And for, 
let's assume that this was a news story. It's not going to stick because people don't care. A lot of people looked at that and said, okay, cool, whatever. Trump has an accountant that was able to figure out loopholes, whatever. So does every other person that makes more than six figures a year. Great. Good for them. My my favorite phrase of 2016 is also my favorite phrase of 2020. Donald Trump is made of mud. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. you can sling you can sling mud at him and it it, it just doesn't make a difference. Uh, this is compared to in 2012 with Mitt Romney who uh, was made of anything but mud. He yep. was one of the most clean-cut candidates in the history of US presidential elections and they and so, buried him. Yeah, and, and and you know any one little thing, let alone what they did to that man in 2012, any one little thing would have made a huge difference. Um, and so, but but with Donald Trump, I don't know that he, he he'll actively embrace some aspects of it. Some aspects of it, he other aspects rather, he will come back out and either apologize for or at the very least, you know, sort of try and move the conversation away from it. You know, he did apologize directly uh, in the election. Uh, for the Billy Bush tapes. Certainly. Um, and, and so it's not that he is beyond contrition in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, those those accusations, it's like each week there's a new revelation about how awful Donald Trump is, or at least how, quote, awful uh, our president is, because some of the things are just non-issues, and I think these tax returns are among them. But even if they were, even if it were, uh, even if the tax returns were significant issues, uh, like even if somehow we could construe that to be a major thing, it wouldn't in, in light of Donald Trump being the subject, they're not major things. Um, it, it's just, it's not enough. You're not going to win the election by vilifying Donald Trump. You will only win the election by propping up your candidate in 2016. Uh, after the election was over, Democrats should have learned this. Um, you cannot run the anti-Donald Trump election and win. You you needed to nominate someone who could uh, run for president on his or her own merits. Um, I think there were a few candidates in the Democratic Party who could have done that. Um, personally, I think there. I I think Tulsi Gabbard could have done that. Um, I'm not as fond of Amy Klobuchar, but I think she could have done that. Uh, and I think there are a few others, but you're not going to win this election running an anti-Donald Trump campaign. And they managed to not nominate someone uh, who can stand on their own merits. Joe Biden is standing on the merits of Barack, o Barack Obama and not being Donald Trump. And I, I will only add that I love your choice of words and propping up and standing on his own because Joe Biden is capable of neither of those things. He is literally being propped up at, from a from a day to day basis. Yeah, and, and you know it's something where he is a walking corpse. <laughs> it, it it's something where I you know I. I mentioned uh, we'll say mentioned that's putting it lightly how astonished I was at Republicans. Uh, hypocrisy. I am equally astonished uh, at Democrats' ignorance, at their at their lack of self education, if you will, with regard to what happened in 2016. Um, you know, they the entire party coalesced around a guy that, you know, I mean, nobody's terrifically excited about him. Um, you've got you've got a few people, and we've had this discussion plenty. 
But there were some legitimate candidates uh, in the Democratic Party who who ran, who even if I disagree with them uh, on virtually every single issue, I understood why, why people were excited about them. Tulsi Gabbard I, forever in our hearts. Yeah, Tulsi Gabbard uh, being pretty far up there. Um, frankly, I understand why people were excited about Elizabeth Warren, even though I, you know, I, the thought of her being president is revolting. I at least understand why people were excited. Well, Chris, you say it's revolting, but she only had one out of 1,024 of a chance at winning. Is that so? Quite. You know, it, I don't know if you're just refute if you're just sandbagging the reference or you don't get it. I hope no, you're I, sandbagging I, I, the I, reference. I got it. I got it. It's uh no, I I just you know, it, it's something where your uh yeah, your ancestry is not going to swing that vote that much. But uh, when it's that much ancestry. Yeah. Well, or that little. But, uh, you know, it's something I just, it baffles me. Um, and even after the party has, has run around, uh, has coalesced around Biden uh, and it officially happened, you know, at the primary, uh, because Tulsi Gabbard was still holding on to a couple of, uh, uh, a couple of, uh, delegates until then. Um, you know, even since then, they could have taken the campaign in a different direction. But every time I turn on football now, I have to see about how Donald Trump wants to kill a kid by taking away his health care. Like, those are actual commercials that are airing right now for Joe Biden. I don't see commercials that detail Joe Biden's accomplishments unless they're in direct contrast to how terrible Donald Trump is. Or if it's something that happened while Obama was in office. But also, I want to respectfully and very briefly push back on something you said. I don't think it's the party's ignorance, truthfully, because ignorance repeated often enough and on a grand enough scale, it's not ignorance anymore. I, I would actually say that the Democratic Party is acting largely with contempt for Trump voters at this point, because they are banking on that there are more people that hate Donald Trump than there are that are willing to like turn their nose up and push the button anyway. But they are acting with contempt because for the dedicated leftist, they cannot wrap their brains around why anyone would disagree with them. Like for the diehard leftists, and this is both uh, at large and the diehard leftists that I have personally interacted with, they exist in a world where the only way that you can disagree with them is if you are woefully ignorant or just morally bankrupt. And so you, have to be, or, you have to be aggressively racist. Yeah. Sorry. You have to be just beyond stupid, beyond racist, or otherwise morally repugnant. So they approach people either with pity or contempt of like, oh, you poor thing. You're just too stupid to understand why Donald Trump is bad for you. And when that doesn't work, you call them a basket of deplorables and then act surprised when the Midwest doesn't vote for you. Yep. It's... It's baffling. I, I, I don't know. I, uh, you know, I'm, I don't believe in Christian non-participation in government. I do believe um, that the Christian can and, you know, when it's appropriate, should vote. Um, but 
with each passing day and with each passing campaign ad, it becomes a more attractive op- option. And so no. I, uh, just, I, I would tend to disagree, but not for Christian reasons. But again, I don't want to get into that until our election special. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, anything else? Uh, the left hates you and wants you dead, but will settle for your submission in the main meantime. All right. And, and, with, and with that, thank you for listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.